Okay, so this is the second lesson, March uh, 3rd, on the beatific vision, walking by faith with the end in sight. I want to make uh, one correction from last time. Uh, Vicky asked the question, and I went from memory about the uh, availability of teaching on the beatific vision in the medieval period. And I think what I said was that these medieval penitential books were not available to the laity. What I should have said is that they were available, but uh, they were basically silent about the beatific vision as uh, a goal of life and as a motivation for serving God, which means basically they didn't have any of this uh, in their day-to-day life. The penitential book was the, the thing for devotions and, and guidance in terms of uh, righteousness before God. So just a, a correction. So it wasn't generally available? Right. It was the, the devoted ones who were, who were given access to this kind of teaching? Uh, well, if you became a monk, uh, then you were in. Yeah. So, you, yeah. Wealth or not, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so today I want to look at, uh, well, to develop some of the themes from last time, but especially and ultimately today focus some on what the Westminster Larger Catechism especially has to say on the subject. Uh, we are going to look at uh, passages from the Bible, but one reason for focusing on the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism is, as I said last time, uh, we may have a sense that this is not really a Reformed teaching. It's somehow imported from Roman Catholicism or something, but as we'll see, it's uh, clearly taught in the standards. And, and uh, not only that, but the, the Westminster... Uh, <laughs> is it time to get started? <laughs> So I'm to quit. Oh no! I'm going to run over. I think uh, the uh, the larger catechism, and as I'm sure you're aware, the shorter catechism begin with a a connection between uh, seeking the glory of God and the enjoyment of God, and the, as we'll see, the enjoyment of God is very, very closely connected with the, the beatific vision. It's a remarkable insight, and so I want to spend some time reflecting on that, from the, especially from the larger catechism. But uh, to get started today, I'd like uh, if someone would read the scripture. So these handouts are scattered around. If someone would read the passage from 1 John 3, those three verses that are at the top there. I have a volunteer. Just read them off the page. Off the page. Okay, so this is one of the classic texts on the beatific vision, the uh, remarkable uh, fact that God has adopted us and he's received us as his children, that we are uh, made new, uh, regenerated uh, to be his children, is uh, the sort of the immediate context of the passage. But uh, John then quickly turns to admit we don't really know what comes after that. So he says, uh, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
And we reflected on this some last time that the beatific vision involves things that are, the usual word is ineffable, things that uh, have not been revealed to us and we can hardly uh, hope to have a good sense of at this point. And John is admitting that, but there's a, I don't know if play of words is the right thing, the, the word revealed then is appeared, appears again. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there, seeing him as he is, is a reference to seeing God, to the beatific vision that comes at the return of Christ. And the hope that this passage gives us is that uh, whatever it is that is in front of us, it is that we will be, we will see him as he is. And there's the remarkable consequence of that that's given here, that we shall be like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We talked about this a little bit last time in terms of the way God uh, prepares us for the beatific vision, that uh, the way of the pilgrim is a way in which God uh, shows himself to us. He reveals himself in Christ again and again to prepare us for that great uh, revelation of himself. Uh, And that revelation of himself uh, through our Christian life is transforming us gradually to prepare us for seeing God. And here the statement is that when we see him, we will be like him, which is an amazing promise that seeing uh, uh, God on the return of Christ is a transforming sight that we will be like him. So uh, that last part of the statement I want to emphasize also, because as I, as I said, there's sometimes concerns about teaching, maybe just in general about the end times, but in particular, maybe on this topic, that it distracts us from a serious Christian life. If all we're doing is, you know, just thinking about things that are, uh, have not been revealed to us and conjecturing what those might be, that uh, that's not constructive for the Christian life. And John says, on the contrary, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The anticipation of seeing God is an anticipation that already in this life uh, is conforming us to his image, is purif- uh, causing us to purify ourselves uh, just as he is pure. There's a lot more that we can say about the passage, but uh, last week I, I only gave like three of sort of the classic New Testament texts. Uh, this is one other, but it, it also helps us to remember uh, what we were thinking about last time. The great hope, the, the satisfaction in seeing God that we saw from uh, Psalm 17, the uh, confession that uh, we, we don't know what lies ahead, but uh, the great hope and the promise of uh, seeing God and being transformed into his image. So uh, that's the, the background, the, some comments on 1 John 3. As I said, I hope we can return to that and, and think about it some more. But do you have uh, further comments on uh, that text or on um, what we talked about uh, last week? Okay, well, let's uh, move on then. The, the first uh, passage I want to look at uh, is in Psalm 27, so that's not uh, printed there. I encourage you to get your Bible out in Psalm 27. Some of us are quite familiar with Psalm 27, uh, and it's a a beautiful uh, statement that's uh, closely related to this uh, topic of seeing God and being satisfied in God. So um, I'll read the first uh, five verses of Psalm 27, the Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise up against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And the psalm goes on from there, but as I said, I think it's pretty familiar, especially uh, I think tend to sing the last part, uh, 27D. David here begins expressing his uh, confidence in God. The Lord is my light and my salvation, and whom shall I fear? And with that uh, confidence is uh, comfort in God and uh, courage because of the things that he faces. He refers to an army encamping against him and uh, says he will not fear. So where does that come from? Where does David get that uh, courage and that comfort and that hope? I would argue it's it's in verse 4, and that's because of David's um, one thing that he seeks. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. Now this uh, one thing is something that he is desiring of God, so... Uh, as we go through this and see the things that he desires, you should realize that they are things given by God. I tried to emphasize last time that the seeing of God is not something that we attain to at our own strength. It's not a work uh, that gains favor with God. It's the gift of God. So the things that he seeks are things that he seeks that God would give him. So what is it, the one thing that he seeks? It's actually a, a threefold one thing. So look at uh, the rest of verse 4. What is it that he seeks of God. To dwell in the house of the Lord. Okay, that's one. Okay, that's two. To inquire in his temple. And you can see why he says one thing. They're really very closely connected with each other. This, this uh, threefold uh, desire that he has of God. Now, if you look at the rest of the psalm, you might doubt whether David really means this, because he asks a bunch of things of God in the psalm, right? This one thing I desire of the Lord, he says, but don't, no, David, you know, in verse 11, you say, teach me your way, and uh, do not turn your face from me, and so forth and so forth. There are lots of things, actually, that David desires of the Lord, but this is the one thing that is the ultimate desire of the Lord. It's the one that you might say, governs all of his other desires. And for that reason, it reminds us of what we saw last time about the beatific vision, that it forces us to be God-centered in our understanding of our ultimate end and even in our understanding of our day-to-day lives. You could ask God to protect you from your enemies when you really didn't care very much about God. He was just the biggest guy on the street. Right. He's the one who can protect you from your enemies. Or you, there are lots of things that you might ask God to give you when you're not really focused on God himself, but on the things that God might give you. But you see, that's not what David says. That's why this is the one thing. The one thing is being satisfied in God. If I could use the language from Psalm 17 last time. The one thing that he desires is something that is supremely focused 
on God himself, not as an end for something else, but as the end in himself, the ultimate good, the ultimate joy. So he really does desire one thing. And out of that one thing, all the other things he desires, or you might say order, they, they flow from that one thing, not because he just wants God to help him out and then is done with God, but because that fellowship with God then works out in the comfort and the courage and the calling on God, the seeking God that he talks about elsewhere. So that's why a good way to summarize Psalm 27 and maybe even the beatific vision is that there's one thing. There's one thing that we seek and desire. So what is, just tell me a little bit about the imagery. Uh, these, we read these, this threefold thing. What, what does it suggest that David uh, wants of God? Look at the imagery that he describes and what uh, sense does that give you? I don't know if that's a specific enough question. If you want to dwell in someone's house, what does that mean? You're welcome. That's right. That's important, especially if it's God's house. There's a sense of intimacy also, right? This is also what we saw in uh, uh, some of the references last week, seeing God face to face. He wants to dwell in God's house because he wants a close relationship with God. He wants to be in the presence of God in a beautiful way. So speaking of beauty, what, else, what, what is the second thing that he desires of, the, of these three? What is the second fold? Behold the beauty of the Lord. What does that mean? Being God's presence. Yeah, okay. Since allowed to stare and look at when uh, people uh, look at each other, you know, there are all these different society rules depending on what country mm -hmm. you're in, about how long to maintain eye contact. And there's always the awkward thing of seeing someone who's disabled or something like that in your eyes, of course, immediately, you know, because your brain's cataloging the differences and then you're suddenly staring and it's rude. But this implies, no, there's, there's, there's none of those barriers. Right. Right. This is, this is seeing God, not in the ultimate sense of the beatific vision at the resurrection, but the seeing God that we talked about last week, the way uh, God shows himself to us, uh, that we may know who he is. But it is exactly what Henry was saying. It is a, a focus on God that uh, would be disturbing if we did that for any of uh, anyone else. It is beholding who God is, but described as uh, God and his beauty. So that also implies that there's um, this, this looking upon the Lord like this implies that there's, um, as Peter said earlier, a welcome, welcome to look at. Right. Um, yeah, that's very good. Um, and, and not only to look at, but to watch. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that underlines the graciousness of it again, especially because we can't see anything of God unless he reveals himself to us. So the only way we can behold the beauty of God is if he shows us his beauty. Right. Good. 
The third uh, word, inquire in his temple. So the word inquire is, uh, you may have uh, different translations. Um, sometimes it's translated to uh, meditate. It's the same word actually as uh, seek in verse uh, seven, seek my face. Um, ponder is another word that's used. The, uh, the sense that you get is that he's not just going there for a quick look. This is something that requires a deep reflection and uh, we're blessed to have already had a class on meditation, so I don't have to go, uh, I don't, you know, we don't go over that again, but this is, this is what he's talking about. It's not, not simply uh, going to the service and then walking out the door. This involves uh, a deep reflection on the beauty of the Lord that uh, is, you might say, something very desirable because of the beauty of the Lord. Now, in the case of David, it's uh, remarkable that he should say that he would dwell there because, right, only the Levites were allowed to hang around that long in the temple. And he had a day job. He had plenty of other things to do. So it's not, not to be taken uh, in that, uh, that sense, but it is the whole orientation of his being toward uh, God. And we should remember that God provided a way for his people to know him in their gathered worship. Right? When you went to the tabernacle, there were plenty of things there that were to teach you about God, to show God's beauty. The tabernacle, and especially the temple, those were beautiful places. They were uh, places, though, that were beautiful because God put things there to instruct them about himself. So in Hebrews 8.5, uh, the writer says that the tabernacle was the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So in desiring to see what was in the tabernacle, he was also desiring to see the true, you might say, the true things, the, the things that they pointed to, ultimately to uh, the redemption in Christ and our acceptance with God uh, because of that. So it's a good thing that he desires, and it's a good thing for us when we gather for worship also to seek to see the glory of Christ and the way he is appointed for his worship. We don't have the furnishings of the tabernacle. Thank God we don't have blood, uh, you know, spilled. And uh, that would be one way to be uh, reminded of your sin and the need for the atonement of sin. But in the gospel, we have, we have a, a better things, as uh, Hebrew says, that more clearly reveal who Christ is. But the call is still the same. The call is to come into God's presence to see the beauty of God, and not just walk away, but to, to ponder, to seek God, and to desire to know him. So I want to read in, in, uh, in summary of uh, our brief discussion on one verse in Psalm 27, a statement by Richard Sibbs. So I put this in there because it's uh, longer. Uh, Richard Sibbs was an early 17th century um, Anglican slash Puritan, I mean, he certainly had uh, theological uh, orientation towards the Puritans, although he stayed in the Church of England. And he has uh, a whole sermon on this uh, one verse. Uh, that's what those guys used to do back then. But um, here's what he says. And let us know what our souls were made for. What are our souls more for than to dwell in the meditation of the beauty of God? What are our souls made for but for excellent things? And what is excellent but in God's ordinances? 
Our souls are for union and communion with God and his ordinances, to grow nearer in communion with God by his spirit, to have more knowledge and affection, more love and joy and delight in the best things daily. And this, the summary statement, I think, is, uh, is just great. Our souls are for those things that will make us gracious here and glorious forever after in heaven. That grace and glory division uh, is, is a biblical division, but the Puritans especially like to highlight the, the graciousness of God here with the anticipation of glory uh, hereafter. That's what our souls are for, and that's, that's why David had one thing. That's, that was David's uh, one thing, too that ordered the rest of his life, that enabled him to, uh, to say, what shall I be afraid of? Comments or questions on, okay, that one verse, uh, Psalm 27? A couple things. Uh, you know, you talk about the one thing with kind of the threefold thing. It kind of seems like Hebrew, the Hebrew poetry yeah. of repetition. Uh-huh, right. And another thing is that, that I'm, really seeing uh, almost a you know father-son type of dynamic going here what does a kid do he wants to dwell you know hang out with his parent he he will observe what his parents yeah. are doing there, there are pictures of me reading beside my dad as a baby or in it, as a little kid because he's reading so i'm getting one of my books and i'm that's reading good. beside him that's very good thank you Actually, the connection with parents comes up in the psalm, verse 10, in a different way. My father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. There's definitely that, that intimacy. Thank you. Other comments? What was the Hebrews quote? 8.5. Copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Yeah. Okay, so uh, now as I said, I'd like to spend... Uh, probably the rest of our time, uh, talking about the way the Westminster uh, standards and especially the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, teaches about the beatific vision and the way it places it in context. So I put down, they don't call it the Larger Catechism for nothing, I, I put down a Larger Catechism question and answer 90, uh, vision and fruition, and uh, you know, I said last time, if, if you wanted to look up a beatific vision somewhere like in a systematic theology or maybe in a, a catechism or, or uh, something like that, where would you look? Well, you would tend to look toward the end because it's pointing to what happens at the return of Christ in particular. So that's why this is question uh, 90, although it still has a lot of more questions to go. Uh, so the question is, what shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? And... The short answer is there are lots of things, but I'm going to skip down. And, uh, but especially, notice the word especially, especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. So uh, that's the high point isn't quite the right word. That's, that's the especially in the larger catechism's description of the eternal state of uh, the believer, what it is that they will especially experience uh, at the day of judgment and therefore you know, for uh, the rest of eternity. And what it says is especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The word vision is a reference to the 
beatific vision. That is a reference to seeing God, as we talked about last week. Uh, the word immediate there, I think Dave brought this up last week, but it's a, a traditional qualifier to distinguish between our vision of God as like we were just talking about, that we see God through the ordinances. We see God through his word. In the end, the vision of God will be immediate without those intervening uh, means to see God. So that's the reason the word immediate is there. And then the word fruition. Okay, so stay with me for a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the way the English language has changed in a way about Latin, but it's not going to be that much. It's going to help, though, for the rest of the study, so stay with me. Um, the word fruition, as is normally used these days, has to do with, uh, the. it's really as a derivative of the word fruit. Things come to fruition if finally we are able to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. That is actually a fairly late usage of the word, like 19th century usage of the word. The uh, Westminster uh, Assembly, for example, writing a couple of hundred years before that would not have used the word in that sense. Uh, instead, the, the word, okay, so here you go. The Oxford English Dictionary, in the original meaning of the word, is the action of enjoying, enjoyment, or pleasurable possession. Okay, so fruition here means enjoying God. And if you're tying in your head with the beginning of the larger, shorter catechism, you see it's really the same thing as the way the catechism begins. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to have fruition of God. And, okay, so nerdy comment. When the shorter catechism was translated into Latin, which it was, as was the confession, the same word in the Latin is used for enjoyment in the beginning of the larger catechism as is used here uh, for fruition. Uh, it sounds like some kind of yogurt. It's F-R-U-I, frui. I don't know if you want to market that somehow, but uh, frui is the I, I enjoy. That, that's, the, that's what the word is in Latin. Sorry, I'm not going to do any more Latin, but um, it's the same word. It means exactly the same thing. So uh, in English, we have two words, but in Latin, it's the same word. Frui means I enjoy. And you can hear how fruition came from frui. It's, it means the same thing. So, okay. I apologize enough times. Not going to do that again. But I just want you to understand that when you see uh, fruition, you should think of it, oh, well, not as, oh, well, everything is finally accomplished. You should think of it as we enjoy communion with God, the communion with God that we were made for, and there's uh, one other important thing about uh, fruition, and this, okay, I'm not going to use the Latin word, so I'll keep my promise, but this goes all the way back to Augustine who wrote in Latin, and he emphasized that uh, distinction between enjoying something or someone for their own sake and enjoying something for, uh, because you're using it for an end. So there are two Latin words. I said I wouldn't give any more Latin, so I won't, but... Uh, Augustine says this, to enjoy a thing is to rest with satisfaction in it for its own sake. To use, on the other hand, is to employ whatever means are at one's disposal to obtain what one desires. And then he says, a little bit later, this is on Christian doctrine, the true objects of enjoyment then are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the reason is that we are to love God for his own sake, because he is the ultimate good. He is the highest end. And therefore, the enjoyment of God is the 
only sort of enjoyment you can really have because he is the only one who is good in himself. He is the highest good. We saw that in Psalm 17 last time, right? The things that we're satisfied in. You can see that in, in David's one thing in Psalm 27. The fruition, in short, that the larger catechism talks about is recognizing that all of our hopes and satisfaction are ultimately in God. You might say everything else is a means to that end of enjoyment in God. So Augustine realized that treating people as means gets kind of tricky. So, you know, he talks about that point. But ultimately, in terms of our relationship to God, the enjoyment of God or fruition of God is the recognition that he is the highest good. He is the ultimate blessedness. And amazingly, he calls us to participate in this blessedness. Okay, this is a lot. I'm just trying to explain that there's a lot more in larger Catechism 90, an immediate vision and fruition than you might think. And the historical understanding is that the vision leads to fruition. Vision is about knowing God. You, you have to know God before you can fully enjoy God as the highest end. That's the, the sort of uh, connection. So Isaac Ambrose, a Puritan writer, the vision of glory amounts unto a fruition of glory. They're very closely connected with each other. To know God leads us to the enjoyment of God. To see God leads us to the full satisfaction in God. Right? That was Psalm 17 last week. When I see you face to face, I will be satisfied. It's exactly that idea. Okay. So it's a long catechism question. I talked about like three words out of it. But does that make sense? Do you understand um, what I'm saying? So it's... It's a very uh, deep, uh, deeply rooted in the history of understanding of the beatific vision. I mean, this understanding of Augustine you find like throughout the history uh, through to the time of uh, the Reformed, and they, they had the same understanding of what it means to come to God. So um, there is one other part here which I, uh, is very painful to skip, but I'm going to skip. We enjoy all of this because of union with Christ. And that's the last part of the larger catechism answer. I figured I wouldn't get to that. And sure enough, I'm not going to get to that. So I'm going to skip over it. But the only reason that we have vision and fruition of God is because we're united to Christ. And because Christ is the one who leads us into the glory of God, into the presence of God. Okay. So let's turn then in the time we have left. I'll, I'll see if I have questions on that part at the end, but I think it's connected with what we're going to talk about next to larger catechism question one. So this is the fourth point on the outline. Um, so again, you know, they don't call it the larger catechism for nothing. We're probably more used to the shorter catechism, but they had some words even here. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. To have fruition of God. That's what that's saying. And you see that, so the larger catechism, like these guys like to tie up loose ends. So at the beginning we said, this is why God made us. And at the end, at least question 90, they said, in Christ, God brings us to that goal. It's a very beautiful way to think about the way God made us and man fell and rebelled. Only by the grace of Christ could we come to attain to the reason that God made us, that we would glorify and actually uh, enjoy fellowship with God and his presence forever. So it's, it's a very uh, beautiful statement, but I, I'd like to reflect a little bit on, 
on one uh, question, and that is, why does the larger catechism tie these two things together? Have you ever thought about that? Shouldn't it just say that the chief end of man is to glorify God? Because everything is supposed to glorify God. The birds and the trees, everything God has made is supposed to glorify God. Wouldn't it have been enough just to say the chief end of man is to glorify God? Why do you think this is added? Yes? Because if they don't, then they don't realize that they're glorifying God. Okay, very good. So, so, so self-awareness. Okay. So it's impossible to glorify God without being aware of the... Of God. Of God, of who God is and mm -hmm. his glory. Good. Okay, that's the sort of, I want to have some discussion about this. That's exactly the sort of thing that uh, I think is really helpful. Dan. Well, only humans are made in God's image, right? right? So God completely and fully enjoys himself, right? Right. We talked about and, that last week. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is a wonderful thing, a glorious thing. And so, yeah, I made in his image would be to be like him. He enjoys himself fully, so it, it would be a cosmic catastrophe if, we, if those made in his image did not also enjoy him and partake of his, just this complete joy in him. Then another level is like all the other things that can glorify him, they don't have that self-awareness. They can't necessarily really enjoy, you know, okay, the, the rocks glorify God. They're not going to enjoy him ever, right. much less forever. Very good. And we don't want to be like rocks. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, right? Otherwise, that's all we are. We're just the cow grazing in the field enjoying the grass. Or kitty cats. Yeah, they, or, or they talk about using. Yeah, that, cats use everyone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Their chief end is themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and I like cats. Yeah. Dogs, on the other hand, that's a whole thing. <laughs> but anyway, we won't get into that debate. <laughs> Good, so good, Henry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, also, uh, for that matter, the wicked will be used to glorify God, but they won't get to enjoy him forever. So there's a, so the chief end of man is to glorify God, and if you just ended it there, well, that applies to righteous and the wicked. We're, we're kind of interested in what the righteous are supposed to be doing. Yeah. It's a, it is a sobering fact that all things are made to glorify God, and they will, even in their condemnation, which is a very sobering thought. But only the enjoying of God comes uh, in that way. Sam? I think it's good to remember, because there's, there's fairly consistent language of um, Parvala is fearing God. And it's good to be reminded that we glorify God, and enjoying him is a good thing. Now, our, our fear isn't the fear of those under judgment, but the fear of those who have a loving father. But having that language can oftentimes make it feel like, oh, I'm happy, is this right? So being reminded is like, oh, we're glorifying God and enjoying him. Both of those are good. Good, that's very good. So that gets at, uh, this is one of the things that's, many things that's been debated over the years, like, so, I'm supposed to enjoy God? Doesn't that sound kind of selfish? Like, you know, after my own happiness? But Sam's point is that excellent one, to realize that the one thing we desire is oriented outside of ourselves. And 
a thing to which uh, for which we were made. You can't really separate glorifying God from like loving Him though either. And that like God's so big and powerful. Like if we truly know Him, we'll enjoy ourselves because that's what we were made to be. Okay. Very good. So, uh, I'll tell you that uh, some time ago I, I looked at commentaries, especially on the shorter catechism. There are some on the larger catechism, but not that many. And uh, especially the newer ones, say the last 50 years or so, tended to focus maybe almost exclusively on the first part of that answer, that we need to glorify God. And I understand, right, because our tendency is to like glorify ourselves or whatever, you know, just to think we're the, the end. Or, but you're really missing something very fundamental in understanding the goodness of God toward us. He didn't just make us to glorify him. He made us so that we enjoy, would enjoy him as the ultimate good. We would have, this is what Dan was talking about, we would have the uh, communion in his blessedness, which he himself enjoys. Um, so I thought I would, uh, are there other thoughts about that? There's, this is a really fruitful uh, topic of meditation, I think, to think about why those two things are joined together. Any other comments or thoughts? Yes? I think um, the word forever, too, helps us realize that as we glorify God, we are promised to be with him yeah. in eternity and we'll be able to enjoy him more fully. Right. Yeah, so 1 John 3, we started with, right? We don't, we don't even know how glorious it's going to be, but it's something held before us as a hope. Yeah. Right. And this, by the way, so this, uh, you know, he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. It's the same idea, right? That as we have the hope of the, the, uh, the vision of God, we are glorifying God. That, that sets before us uh, something that motivates all of our thoughts and all of our, our living. Yes. Enjoy it has in in within the word joy. Right. So right. how can I mean cats do have joy? But, um. <laughs> I'm the one who raised cats. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Good. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, but but I mean, I I think that this is a um, I think it's something more to be said about joy. So I don't right. know exactly what to say. No, yeah, so I, uh, by, by uh, not going through the rest of that catechism question, I, I didn't get to get to this, but the, the beatific vision of Christ and his human nature, Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. And that's that same word, fullness, is the satisfaction, as I pointed out last weekend. It's in your, before your face is satisfaction and joy. So that's right, it's, it is... Uh, if you read commentaries on the beatific vision, they have like seven things that come from the vision. And it's, it's beautiful, but they go on and on. And joy is one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, there is an immediate... Uh, mm -hmm. So, but joy isn't just satisfaction. We can right. be satisfied at the end of the meal, but this is something beyond that. Well, level. yeah. I would say satisfaction is beyond normal satisfaction, maybe. But, uh, right, right. Yeah, no, right. Yeah, and that's why it's... Uh, I went to, that's why I gave us a little Latin lesson. lesson. So if I say we're going to enjoy God, well, you know, I like going for a walk. I like concerts. I enjoy <laughs> a lot of different things. I enjoy a good meal, especially chocolate. 
you know, lots of things I enjoy. This is, a, this is not that, right? This is finding God as the ultimate good. Chocolate is not, you know, the music is not, right? The ultimate satisfaction is in God himself. And that's what they mean when they say enjoyment. It's to find enjoyment of God means in a sense there's, okay, Psalm 27 again, there's one thing. There's one thing. All of our other loves are ordered under that one thing. We can, we can enjoy lots of things, but ultimately because they come from the hand of the one whom we enjoy. Good. So uh, that was really good. I appreciate that uh, discussion. Let me, let me close uh, with a, a comment with, uh, from B.B. Warfield, which I think I put in the notes. So Warfield was uh, early 20th century uh, the last of the like really reformed uh, Princeton uh, theologians, and he wrote a, he wrote a whole article on the origin of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number one: Where did that language come from? It's an interesting article, uh, and he says this: According to the reformed conception, man exists not merely that God may be glorified in him, that but that he may delight in this glorious God. And then get this: No man is truly reformed in his thought. Less than unless he conceives of man not merely as destined to be the instrument of the divine glory, but also as destined to reflect the glory of God in his own consciousness, to exult in God, nay, unless he himself delights in God as the all-glorious one. If you chop off the last half of Westminster Larger Catechism 1, if you say the chief end of man is to glorify God, say, according to Warfield, you're not reformed. And that's part of the, the beauty of this. You know, you think of reform, you know, God, you know, predestined us and God wants all the glory and so forth, which is true. But God in his goodness draws us in to delighting in himself. That's what it means to be truly reformed. Okay. So let me close just with uh, an encouragement as we, uh, we're coming into God's house in the next hour. We're we're there to fellowship with God, to see his glory and the ordinances that he has appointed. And I'd encourage you to, to take that attitude of, of that is the, the one thing that God has set before us. And also encourage you to, not just in the service, but maybe in the afternoon sermon discussion or whatever, to, to meditate, to ponder and inquire. All those things are given to us as uh, a way in which we can see the beauty of God. But it requires uh, that sort of diligence that David uh, said he would give himself to in Psalm 27. Okay, let's uh, close in prayer.